You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, and I am joined by Thomas Frey, who is a senior futurist and founder of the Da Vinci Institute, a very well-known futurist, author, keynote speaker. He's spoken to audiences of high-level government officials as well as NASA uh, executives of Fortune 500 companies such as IBM, Capital One, a homegrown company, Bell Canada, Visa, as well as Ford. And he's been featured in thousands of articles for national and international publications, including the New York Times, the Huffington Post, USA Today, Forbes, Fast Company, World Economic Forum, and Times. First of all, thank you very much for joining us today, Thomas. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I know this term gets thrown around a lot, and I think maybe it's great to start at the top, which is can you tell us what is a futurist? And then uh, once you've kind of gone through that, maybe you can also tell us a little bit more about what the Da Vinci Institute uh, does. Sure. Um, I, I always think of my job as being uh, helping people understand, uh, under, expanding people's understanding of what the future holds. And so I, I look at lots of different topics and um, uh, whether it's the future of education or the future of agriculture or the future of banking, um, there's lots of trend lines that you can study, and lots of things are already happening today which are going to have huge influence on the, the industry in the future. Um, as, as an example, in the banking world, we're going to see lots of the branch banks start closing. Uh, in the United States, we have 94,000 branch banks um, around the country. But once you can do everything on your telephone, why do you need uh, what do you need all the real estate and and so that becomes kind of an interesting shift that's that we're about to see and I'm predicting that we'll start seeing a closure of somewhere between five to ten thousand branch banks a year uh, starting probably within the next couple of years and so when you look at a trend line like that then you can start seeing how that affects not just uh, the industry itself, but the personnel and the jobs and all the things surrounding that. And can you tell us a little bit more about what the Da Vinci Institute does? Oh, sure. Um, so we, we, uh, uh, I think of ourselves as not just uh, visionary thinkers, but also visionary doers. So we, we've been doing a lot of experimenting to try uh, testing things out about the future. Uh, so as an example, in 2012, we started a, a coding school um, called Da Vinci Coders, and we're training people on how to become computer programmers. Uh, so we were the second school in the country to do something like that, and it was a, oh, a 13, 14-week course of study. Now, this helped us understand, um, you know, kind of the motivations behind why people were shifting Careers and what was was driving some of the uh, the need for new programmers, and uh, and so as we watched this industry evolve, then last year there was 550 schools that had cropped up around the United States uh, doing uh, essentially the same thing. Um, so we started thinking about uh, Da Vinci Coders as a micro college and so as a and micro colleges are, are giving us the ability to shift gears in our life. 
Uh, so we've, we've put together this uh, projection that the average person entering the workforce in 2030 had better plan to reboot their career 10 times through their working life. And so, um, so somebody who has to shift gears that often will want to do the retraining in the least amount of time, not the most. And so that uh, makes traditional colleges a very poor fit for that type of retraining. And that's, that's what's creating this need for micro-colleges. And we think micro-colleges are going to go off in a thousand different directions, including training people to uh, how to design parts for 3D printers or how to um, – how to become uh, a crowdfunding expert or how to how to fly drones or even how to become a brewmaster in a brew pub. Um, so a lot of people are going to want to shift gears in the future. They're going to be forced to shift gears in the future. And so in the U.S., we're very good at spending lots of money on, on college-level education, college-level training, but we're not good at the, the retraining part. So we're, we don't have many funds for the retraining part, which is going to be a hot issue in the future. So these are kind of some of the areas where we think about these trends and then we, we, we play around with them. Right now we have a co-working facility where we have 14,000 square feet of space. We have roughly 35 startup companies in our, in our um, working area. So we're studying this whole area of collaboration. Thomas, just along those lines, do you, um, talking about micro colleges, do you, are you, are you saying that, you know, over the next 20, 30 years that the value of a Ivy League education will be significantly diminished from where it is today and it's going to be more about specialization? I think the value of an education is, is going to, um, uh, extend over a shorter period of time in the future because um, the education we receive in college will tend to wear out quicker. Uh, the world is, is shifting very quickly. And so, you know, t 20 years from now, we're still going to have accountants, we'll still have nurses, but the tools that they use are going to be uh, vastly different. And so, um, so we have to constantly be upgrading our skills along the way. And so there's some things that will will be valuable throughout our entire lifetime, but there's there's other skills that we're going to have to be refreshing on a regular basis. Yeah, I think that one of the biggest challenges with, with you know, innovation and, and the future is people's resistance to, to change. Um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm guilty of still using a BlackBerry. Uh, I haven't uh, moved over to other devices. Some people are more resistant than others, but, you know, I remember when Netflix first came out, everybody... Uh, thought, why would you ever uh, not use Blockbuster Video and why would you use this silly application uh, on your television? So I find that that's one of the biggest challenges. But and I, and that's why I think a lot of people, you know, when they look to the future, they think it's almost Jetson-like and a, and a little bit silly to hear about some of the things that are coming down the pike. But if you did have a crystal ball uh, and you were able to kind of envision, you know, ten years from now. How do you think our daily lives are going to be significantly different than the way they are today, or will they be significantly different than they than they are today? Yeah, see, that's a that's a a tough question. Um, some of the some of the areas I I think about, you know, with uh, Amazon Alexa and Cortana and 
a Google Voice system. Um, we're, we're as we're developing these uh, technologies where we talk back and forth. Um, we're developing along with it voice commerce, so we'll be buying things just by talking to things. But uh, I think of this as developing kind of the voice and the mind of the the computer, the robot, if you will. So um, over time, as we keep adding skills to these devices, that pretty soon this will morph into a head and then morph into arms and legs, and then suddenly the uh, kind of the mind of the robot, um, and we can add this mind of the robot, the body of the robot can not just be a, a human-looking robot, it can be uh, a car, it can be a, a boat, it can be a drone, it can be an airplane, it can be a vacuum cleaner or, or a, a lawn-mowing robot. And, and so it's, it's rather interesting to, to kind of watch how all of this is starting to morph and shift. Um, and I think that uh, uh, all of these things kind of catch us off guard and surprise us. Um, you, you know, if, uh, I, I think that, as an example, one device that will be popular 10 years from now will be a 3D printer that women use to they insert their face and it'll apply their makeup on every morning um, <laughs> in, in record time. Um, it's it's a real challenging uh, example, though. I mean, it's something that when we talk about it, we can envision how that would work. But um, actually creating that device, there's there's so many challenges in the in in kind of how people's faces are different, the contours, the complexions, the colors, and all that. And so uh, I I I I think that's rather uh, kind of a novel uh, device that I think is coming down the pike soon. Do you think we'll we'll have? I mean, I'll ask you a few uh, questions. Do you think? we'll have uh, self-driving vehicles in the next five to ten years? I mean, I know technology is progressing. There's still, uh, no pun intended, but there's still some speed bumps along the way. But uh, And obviously, you still need to deal with legislation. But do you do you feel in your mind that, the, that you know, we'll be there uh, in the next, you know, five to ten years? Uh, we'll definitely have self-driving vehicles in five to ten years. Um, now, will the average person be using them? Probably uh, not for the most part. Um, see, one of the things that's missing is the Wi-Fi everywhere part of the equation. Um, so much of the decision-making for driving a vehicle um, is is going to be on board the vehicle itself, but it needs to communicate with the cloud because all these vehicles need to talk with each other. And, and so if there's changing road conditions ahead, as an example, then um, if there's snow on the road or hail or um, – I don't know, maybe there's a chemical spill or something on the road. Um, you need to know about it. And, and the the latency period, the lag time uh, in getting the information from the cloud is is a critical factor in, in making this an effective system. Um, see, the, the airline industry is really paving the way for the safety metric for driverless cars. Um, yeah, we in the United States we just had an airline death um, on a Southwest Airlines flight, and and that was the first um, fatality since 2009 in the airline industry. Um, 
Now, if we could achieve anything close to that in in uh, the automobile world, boy, we would save so many lives. So in the in the U.S., um, we spend right at half a trillion dollars, um, five hundred billion dollars, repairing people after car accidents every year. Uh, that's in addition to thirty-eight thousand people who die every year, and and so. Uh, it works out to about one out of every six dollars in the healthcare industry goes away uh, if we can get uh, something close to the airline industry. And I think that's that's a, would be a remarkable accomplishment. But I I think that this takes for the driverless car industry. I think it takes two to three decades before we really get there. Uh, in the U.S., we have 273 million registered vehicles, and that's a whole lot of hardware that we'll have to transition through to get to the to get to the other side, so to speak. So, there's so many things uh, to to look forward to. Uh, what percentage of you? is super excited about the future and what it's going to bring and what percentage of you is scared and concerned and and maybe elaborate a little bit more on what does scare you a little bit about the future. Yeah, I've never quite broken it down in percentages, but the vast majority of me is very optimistic. I I think we live in, a, in such a super exciting time. Um for me, um, every morning I wake up and say, okay, okay, what the hell has changed today? Um, there's always something new, something different. I, I just find it to be so fascinating, all the changes that we're going through. Now, these changes affect a lot of people in different ways. There's going to be a lot of people that lose their jobs. They're going to get caught in between the cracks of uh, of the kind of the things happening. And, and they're going to be woefully unprepared for the changes necessary um, to be effective in a, in a future world. So um, I think that we, we've got um, uh, so many cool things happening that um, it, it just seems to me that uh, all of the challenges that we have, the things that the problems that are lying ahead just create new opportunities. And we're going to have vastly more tools to solve these opportunities than ever before. Concerned about cybersecurity, concerned about the, you know, the amount of connectivity that we have uh, in the world. I mean, you know, right right, right yeah. now I, I see we have, uh, I don't know, I see different stats out there, but let's call it 20 billion devices that are connected that uh, many people think is going to be growing to about 75 billion uh, in the course of the next uh, five to ten years. I mean, how does that, I mean, I, I see massive advantages to that, of course, but uh, is cybersecurity a concern for you? Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's that's one that uh, we're going to have to work our way through. So in the past, we've had all these people that um, are radical transparency advocates. Um, they think that if we know everything about everybody, that we're going to live in a vastly uh, safer world. But see, if I know everything about you, then I know what your credit card numbers are, your bank account numbers are, what your passports are, and suddenly we lose our ability to own things. And so we need some sort of a privacy bubble around every person, but we haven't defined that legally. We haven't defined that technologically, and all the emerging technology seems to be creating new uh, ways of piercing the privacy veil, so to speak. So there's there's lots of interesting things happening, but the, 
the, the privacy issue is definitely a challenge. Now, in addition to just normal cybersecurity hacks, um, and and we're going to have problems with uh, the hacking cars and hacking drones and things like that. Um, but the the one that scares me the most is actually weaponized AI. Mm. And I, I think that uh, weaponized AI, that we can actually create some automated uh, threat engines that, you see, every person cares about something. They care about Oh, their kids, their mom and dad, their brothers and sisters, they care about their friends, their dog. And so it doesn't take too much probing to actually find out what you care about. And uh, when you when you direct the right threats against some person, then you can force them to do something they wouldn't normally do. You can force them to pay money. Um, you, you can just create general chaos in a community. So these... These chaos engines, uh, these threat engines, can actually be directed against, or they can be directed against a race of people, a country, uh, a religion, uh, a company, uh, an association. They, they can be targeted in some uh, interesting ways. And uh, so the, the cure for weaponized AI is actually more AI. Uh, so it becomes something of a, an arms race, if you will. And that's that's kind of the way it is with cybersecurity all around, is that, um, you know, we, we need the smart good guys to to somehow outfox the smart bad guys. Well, a lot of the smart, a lot of the smart good guys were some of the smart bad guys, right? <laughs> I mean, a lot of a lot of the the, the greatest cybersecurity experts are uh, former hackers uh, themselves. I've met with a number of them, and they've said to me that you know you need to understand their mindset in order to figure out how to uh, be a step or two steps ahead of them. So, kind of it kind of makes absolutely. sense. So, yeah, so absolutely. In the last like few months. Um, has anything kind of come? Have you come across any uh, new application or hardware or software that you thought is like, wow, that is super cool, and that is going to be really uh, uh, potentially a game changer for our future? Like for me personally, uh, I think the Google Assistant. Uh, when I saw the demo uh, that they did on it, I thought that is like really that's going to change uh, the way we live. That's going to change our work life. That's going to change our personal life. Have you come across something like that in the last few months that's really kind of excited you? Yeah. Um, yeah, the the drone world has really kind of captivated my attention. Um, and and there's oh, over a dozen companies now that are uh, playing in the space of, of uh, passenger drones that can fly from point A to point B in a city. Um, so if you think about how this evolves, if I can jump into a drone and just hit a couple buttons and fly across the city and avoid all the the, the, the congestion down below, um, if the pricing is right on that, I mean, if it costs maybe twice as much as an Uber ride or something like that to be about the right pricing, then lots of people are going to start doing this. So as people start flying across the city, um, you're going to have uh, a landing pad on one spot and a landing pad on the other spot. And as you have more traffic that develops and you need more than one landing pad, maybe two landing pads, three, uh, eight, ten, twelve, and and then you need support people there as well. So you need the ground crews that might change out batteries or doing recharging on these things. 
and uh, then you have uh, it, it turns into it evolves into a mini airport. Um, so that is so, very Jetson-like. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> there's already there's already a drone company in China that's offering uh, service across. I think it's Beijing right now, um, which I find just absolutely fascinating. Wow! And and so this is coming. And with all of the effort that's going into this, and this includes Airbus and Boeing are wanting to play in this space as well. Sure. Um, I think that that suddenly becomes such a game changer um, in, in how we we travel across cities. We've become a very fluid society, um, especially with driverless cars and with drones and everything. Um, we can uh, move across a city um in, in record time, and when it becomes easy to travel across the city, then we'll just do more of it. Uh, so does that mean, so and, Thomas, does that mean that you're not a believer in Hyperloop, for example? That you actually think that the the drone uh, opportunity could uh, could be a lot bigger? Um, well, they're actually um, uh, apples and oranges. Um, if you're going from one city to another city. Um, the tube transportation offers lots of advantages. You know, you can get there very quick and efficiently. Um, there's there's actually a company called ET3, which would travel about five times as fast, uh, going about 4,000 miles an hour or 6,000 kilometers an hour. Um, and that, uh, and so, I mean, the, the possibility of, fly, of traveling from um, uh, Toronto, where you're at, to Beijing in two hours uh, becomes entirely possible. Now, right. as, sorry, I was I was thinking more from a commuting perspective, but you're talking more from a travel perspective. Right. Uh, so tube transportation around the city, um, I'm not sure that that makes makes good sense um, because you know, the driverless cars I think are going to get much more efficient mm-hmm. and handle most of the local transportation. Um, and, and so the, kind of the way I think about tube transportation, though, is that once we have the first successful pilot project, uh, every country in the world suddenly wants to line up and be on that system that cr- gets created around the world for tying the world together with tube transportation, and suddenly it becomes the largest infrastructure project on planet Earth. I think it takes 50 to 70 years to build it out, and it will employ hundreds of millions of people, costing trillions of dollars, but it'll pay for itself as it goes. Um, that I find to be absolutely fascinating. Great. Um, two quick questions. I want to go back to 3D printing. You talked about the applicable use for uh, women uh, with makeup. Can you just, for, for a lot of people still don't fully understand uh, 3D printing, can you just kind of give a high-level uh, explanation of what it is? Yeah, 3D printing was actually created in the 1980s, and it's basically you're you're printing one layer of material upon another layer upon another layer until you create the whole object, and and so they've gotten there's different techniques for doing this, and they've gotten better and faster over time. Uh, speed is one of the uh, still one of the, the hangups on the industry, so they haven't gotten ways of producing products. Um, really quickly, but um, but this is this is all coming in. It, so it's 
3D printing is going off in thousands of different directions. We're printing uh, biomaterials. We're able to print with living tissue. We can print uh, replacement heart for somebody with with actual working blood vessels in it, but it's not quite ready for prime time just yet. Uh, we're printing, oh, everything from um, eyes for people that uh, have a replacement eye to noses and fingers and things like that, to prosthetic limbs. And uh, we're getting better at these things, so each generation gets better and better. And it gives us the ability to shift gears on the fly. Um, one of the areas I'm super excited about is um, what's become known as contour crafting, the, this idea of being able to 3D print an entire house, one layer upon another layer upon another layer. And if you think about just a construction site and setting up a rig around it, um, people are, have already done this where they were able to actually 3D print an entire house out of concrete uh, or concrete-like material, and they can print it layer upon layer upon layer and do it all in less than a day. So as this technology improves, we're not just printing the structure, but as it improves, we'll be able to to also print the wiring in the walls, the plumbing in the walls. We'll be able to print the the cabinets in the kitchens, the toilets, the sinks, uh, insulation in the walls. We'll be able to print the windows and the roofing. And so... Uh, we can print the entire house in less than a day, and then it's ready to move into. In fact, if you if you then once we're able to do that quickly, then if you get tired of your house, all you have to do is just grind it up and reprint it. Um, you don't even have to. <laughs> that just sounds so unfathomable. Yeah, uh, but you won't even have to clean it first. Um, and if, if wow. But in your mind, Tom, it's like how far away is that? Um, I think we're going to start seeing lots of houses in less than five years that are wow, printed really? Um, okay. Yeah, and I uh, so uh, I have to remind people that the cars that we drive today have been in development for 120 years. So with every new technology, we have to work our way through the crappy stages before we get to something good. And, um, I don't know, like with virtual reality, we've had many years of crappy VR. Um, and so it takes a while to get to the really good stages. Now, the 3D printing has been has been working its way into our, uh, our lifestyle since the early 1980s, so almost 40 years now. And so it's it's getting much, much better. And... Uh, and so I think it's just a matter of having one company that sells the device for printing an entire house. And uh, and once they start selling that, then we're going to start seeing rapid advancements in that area. That's, uh, that's a game changer. For, I mean, it sounds like there's obviously a lot of game changers uh, in our, in our yeah. future. And I, I guess, you know, one last question before we close this off. Uh, social media. What are your thoughts of how that's going to be changing and how relevant social media is going to be in our future as well? Yeah, that's a tr- tricky question because um, I, I think it comes off of the screen and everything. It's kind of the, the, the way we think of our, our cell phones and our the tools that we have in our pockets or our, 
iPads or tablets or whatever that we're doing social media on, I think it moves into the air that um, I just uh, the, we're predicting that by 2022 or to 2024 that, oh, somewhere 10% of all eyeglasses will be connected to the Internet. Um, so we'll have screens on our, our glasses. Um, and just that shift alone uh, will make it so that so many more people are involved in these these conversations, these uh, these connections in different ways. If that's the case, then why do you think uh, Google Glasses didn't take off? Because that's still part of the crappy stages of that technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's just too many little nuances of the, the user interface that that they didn't get right, and right. Um, and so as they as they come at it again and again and again, they they'll get much better. Right. Um, but uh, it, it's a lot of work to get all those little details right. Well, this was a fantastic session. I thank you very much, Thomas, for your time and look forward to flying to Beijing in a couple of hours and uh, making my next house uh, from 3D printing. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. I uh, enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the discussion. Thanks. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.